it was so scary that you no longer feel any fear. It was beyond fear. It was just you become hypnotized or paralyzed in a way uh, so that you can survive. Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm Pamela Hensley, and on the show today, multi-award-winning author Kim Twee talks about fleeing Vietnam by boat, the eternal gratitude she feels for the people of Quebec, and how she learned about the power of letting go. Kim is part of a large family that lived in a big house in the middle of Saigon, Despite the war, she lived a relatively privileged life until the communists took over and literally moved into their house. Fearing their future, the family decided to flee. Against the odds, they made it to Malaysia, where they waited in a refugee camp for another country to accept them. Kim went on to study linguistics, became a lawyer, a restaurant owner, and without taking it too seriously at first, an author. Her debut novel was Rue, which won the Governor General's Award for Fiction, when Canada Reads, two years later, and has since been translated into 38 languages, sold more than a half a million copies, and was adapted to film and premiered this September at TIFF. Rue was followed by three more novels, Man, V, and her latest, M, we met in the Montreal studio for this conversation. You spent the first 10 years of your life in Saigon. What are your favorite memories of that city? Oh, it was a very busy. You know, it's a big city, but at the same time, we stayed in a very close space. Even though I had the opportunity to live in a big house, you know, with many people, but still we were not allowed to play outside, to stroll the, stroll down the streets and so on and so forth. So it was not, you know, like a, I don't have happy memories because of that. Even though, this being said, I have a very big family. It is a society by itself, on its own. It's a village. Uh, Your so, family is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have so many co- cousins around that I didn't feel like I missed out on on playing with other kids. We were raised uh, basically together as a herd, you know. <laughs> so maybe that was more than enough. You say you lived in a small space. but No, it was a, a big house. It was okay. uh, way too big in comparison with, you know, the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, when you're up there in that tower, it was taller than... than all the other houses around. And so you can see, you know, what was happening uh, outside of those big fences, right? The walls, not the fences, but they were literally big walls around the house, around the tower. And so uh, I just saw other kids being so free and me being overly protected, maybe. And why weren't you allowed to play outside? It was dangerous. It was, you know, wartime. My family, we were very much involved uh, in politics and so on and so forth. So there was um, a sense of danger for us to be um, not under surveillance (laughs) by parents. Uh, So uh, we were taken to school and brought home from school directly because uh, we wanted to avoid anything Unexpected, right. I would say. Yeah. I mean, the war in Vietnam started before you were born, and you've said you didn't really experience it until the weapons were laid down. 
Yeah, I didn't know, not consciously, okay. that there was a war. Because when, when I was born in 1968, so at the peak, right, uh, the, the moment when the war became really serious right. in, uh, in the south of Vietnam. So I was right into the middle of the war. But because you were born into that, it was not exceptional to see uh, the military in the streets. You know, it was normal because I had always seen that. And during COVID time, you know, my, my I said to my parents, oh, yeah, there's a curfew now, you know, uh, let's get prepared. And my mom was um, unmoved by this news because she said that she had, you know, been raised in uh, curfews. And, and I was born during, a, you know, d- during that time. So my first 10 years, were under, you know, were in that structure, a curfew. So that was nothing new to me, but I I, I didn't remember. Uh, It was just normal that you cannot go outside after nine. It was part of life, you know, and to see people with guns, you know, uh, it was just normal. And you think that life was normal until you, you arrive here in Quebec. And you wonder, oh my God, where are the militaries? You know, where, where are, are the, the walls around the houses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did your did your house stand out from the others then? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, so were you shamefully like, oh today, my. I would say, uh, but it did. And because my my grandmother was very modern, I mm. would say, she wanted to have her uh, her children live in the same tower, and. Uh, if we were in the countryside, then the houses would be built just around, you know, like uh, on the same land. But we were in the middle of, of uh, downtown Saigon, so you don't have enough space mm-hmm. to just build different houses on the up. same. So you go up. Mm-hmm. So she had invented the concept of condos way before condos, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, uh, so yeah, all her daughters and she was also very modern because usually daughters would go to the their husband's uh, family. But she succeeded at having all her daughters living, you know, in the same tower with their husbands. <laughs> how, how incredible. Wow. How incredible is that? She had um, eight children. Mm-hmm. Uh, with six daughters, mm-hmm. so usually she would have lost all of them, right, to the uh, to Good the other her. families. Yeah. <laughs> so she said, "No, I'm going to build condos, and they'll be so comfortable; they don't want to go anywhere else." Yeah, like and uh, yeah, so that's why it stood out. And did you like? Did you go to tennis lessons? Did you have Absolutely. dance class? Did you, you did uh, school? Tennis was a very luxurious sport mm-hmm. because. Uh, it, just think about the balls, the tennis balls. You have to import them, right? And during wartime, dollars uh, mm. were very expensive and rare. So every tennis ball was uh, basically a diamond, right? <laughs> and so we reused them as long as we can by injecting air into the ball. So it keeps, you know, uh, bouncing uh, for the longest time. You no longer have that fur around. I don't know how you call that, yeah. but, uh, but you keep playing on the same balls, basically, and just inject air in there. So tennis was, you have to be part of a very exclusive club to have access to a tennis court. 
and uh, and so yeah, we had the chance to be part of that kind of circle. And as a matter as a matter of fact, it was called Le Cercle Sportif, okay. and you have to be a member and endorsed by many people in order to yeah to, to get join. in to join. And uh, and so yeah, I had the chance to be part of that circle that circle, and I play I started playing tennis very young, but not, it doesn't mean anything <laughs> though because yeah. you know. I'm not really better, <laughs> but uh, that was But it meant you had now. a childhood, all this while the bombs are falling. Absolutely. So I was very privileged mm-hmm. to not see, to not live the war um, firsthand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, the tennis was, uh, the tennis courts, they were behind tall walls. Mm-hmm. Again, you're in like a, a, a different universe. You know, you're not in the real world, I would say. And that's why I told you that I felt like I was not in Vietnam, really. I was just living in an, you know, um, yeah, a world apart from what was going on uh, on the ground. Anywhere else. In 75, Saigon fell and the communists moved in. Mm. Is it true they took over your house and built walls in it? Of course, of course. It was big enough. <laughs> they could do this. Yeah, that you could divide the house into two. And, uh, and the, the, the part that we, uh, we gave up uh, to, uh, to the government uh, was used as a police station uh, because it was big enough once again. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's very uncomfortable to live next to a police station, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and especially under a communist regime where you are being watched all the time. And you were watched? We were watched. And not only by the police, but also by the neighbors and everywhere, because that was the culture at that moment to install fear so that everybody would have to denounce, basically. You were forced to denounce uh, other people around you. Uh, even myself, you know, at seven, eight, I had to stand up in a class, uh, in my class, and denounce an act of, um, how would you say, anti-revolutionary act or anti-cultural act or, you know, reading a book or listening to music because books were no longer authorized unless uh, they were, uh, you know, chosen by the government. Uh, Same thing with music. And they made you burn your books? Absolutely. Well, no, they didn't make us. You know, we wanted to not to be accused of anything, so we tried to burn And said, no, we didn't own these books. And uh, same thing with music. And they were, you know, wheels of tapes, you know, oh. that you put on a machine. Okay. So we had to un- to roll out all the tapes and, and try to burn uh, the tapes. And, uh, with the music, was it because of the lyrics or is it just uh, the idea of, of the, the frivolty lyrics. of music? or The frivolty something? of music and also the lyrics. The uh, we, you know, after 75, we were supposed to concentrate on building the country and not singing love songs, uh, you know, frivolous love songs or heartbroken what, uh, yeah. heartbreaks. Right. Uh, so, no, there are no more heartbreaks. Come on, <laughs> let's build the country. <laughs> More important things to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep your mind on the right track, right? Did your schooling change? Absolutely. Everything changed. Uh, So I I went to a school near my house. And first of all, you know, the way that we, uh, we dress... Uh, was controlled, right? We had to wear the red scarf 
to uh, express basically our allegiance to mm-hmm. the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in the classroom, all of a sudden, you have the, the picture of Uncle Ho, we call him. Mm-hmm. And so everywhere, there was a picture of Uncle Ho, whereas before that, there was no pictures of, no, of anybody in the <laughs> classroom, right? Did you notice a change in the level of fear or in the way people behaved very quickly because we had all those uh, the soldiers living with us uh, the the soldiers from the the communist side uh, we we couldn't allow ourselves to speak no more mm-hmm. whereas i have a very noisy family <laughs> and, you know we fight we discuss well not fighting right. but discuss and converse you know on anything mm-hmm. we can yeah discuss about the color of water for <laughs> three days you know and and cry even because because uh, we disagree on the call of water, you know, something like that. We're very dramatic. And all of a sudden, with these soldiers in the house, we had to go quiet uh, so that none of us would have to stand up and denounce something of, you know, uh, that someone has done. And when you're seven years old, seven year old, a seven-year-old can denounce only the people of his or her family, mm-hmm. right? You cannot... Mm-hmm. You don't hear anything from the outside world. And so in the home itself, you have to go quiet and blind and deaf as much as possible. So, yeah, the level of fear went up very quickly. When the decision was made to flee the country, it involved undertaking a massive risk. But this was better than the alternative. There were no alternatives. Well, what was the alternative? The alternatives, and I still remember the the, the conversation between my mom and my uh, grandmother, whispering, you know, so that nobody would hear. But of course, when you start whispering, everybody would listen. <laughs> <laughs> Even more so. <laughs> yes, and the keyholes uh, in Vietnam, you know, the old keyholes, they were like literal yeah. holes. <laughs> so you can see, not only listening, you know, you can hear, but you can literally see. And I saw my mom talking to my grandmother saying that uh, she was thinking about fleeing, you know, with with our family. And she asked my grandmother to let also the two youngest children who were 17 and 18 to leave us with us. Because if you were 18 and you were not admitted to a university, you go directly to uh, a battlefield. And there were two active battlefields back then in Vietnam. And when you went to a battlefield, you You rarely come come back. My uncle was 17, so she knew that he would never be admitted to university because admission was based on uh, your family history and your family background. So she asked my grandmother to let my uncle come with us. And my grandmother said to her, but... She had heard many boats sinking at sea. So she said, you're going to kill my son. And my mother said, but your son is already dead. So you choose where you want him to die. Do you want him to die in Cambodia, at the border with China, or at sea? But at least we will feel like we... We tried, you know, we, it, it was the last attempt to survive. So let's do this. Uh, we, we've got nothing to lose. And, uh, and that's why we left. Were your parents fully aware of all the dangers 
just just well, you know we and knew. even getting to the shore yeah yeah we were not we did not know where we were going we just we just jumped into the sea you know it was literally in the sense that you didn't even know uh, where you were heading yeah. you were just hoping that you find yourself in Thailand Malaysia or Indonesia or the right. Philippines uh, but we had no idea and uh, you know they didn't even have a there was only one compass you know like a very <laughs> tiny one on the boat <laughs> Probably didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> um, you've probably been asked this countless times, but what do you remember of the boat trip? Is it vivid? It is vivid. At the same time, it was not because you were hungry, because you were thirsty. So there were probably a lot of hallucination. You know? How long were you on that boat? Not very long. Three days and uh, no, three nights and four <laughs> days. <laughs> That's long when you don't know where you're going to land. Absolutely, right? but it's not long compar- in comparison with other boats. You know, there are boats which were at sea for weeks mm-hmm. uh, on end, and and that was very very hard. Absolutely uh, undescribable, almost. Whereas we got it easy. We didn't meet any, you know, encounter any pirates. And I was pushed down into uh, the belly of the boat because it was a very tiny boat, uh, probably 10 meters long. How many people were uh, on board? More than 200. Uh, but we didn't know. We didn't yeah. know how many of us, you know, were were all. You could see your whole family was there, though. No, no, you no, couldn't. because I was just being pushed, you know, into the belly. There was a, uh, there was a second floor. They they built a second floor to hold, you know, enough people. So there was just one square hole through which you can go through, and um, and that's like a bus, you know, mm. when it's very busy, people just push, <laughs> push you. you in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go to the back, go to the back, right? So I was pushed into that belly and uh, I sat next to my uncle uh, for uh, the first probably I don't know how many how long but it felt like very long before I knew where my parents were but it was so scary that you no longer feel any fear it was beyond fear it was just you become hypnotized or paralyzed in a way uh, so that you can survive the the trip, and when I say paralyzed, uh, it was literally literally that almost that there were no chairs. You, as you could imagine, it was mm-hmm. just a, a wooden plank where you kind of lean over, and uh, of course it was uncomfortable, right? For even in this very comfortable comfortable chair, if you sit for four days, yeah. you, <laughs> You're you now. no no more, right? But we didn't feel any. I didn't feel any muscle pain or, yeah, discomfort because your body just, it had to go off uh, so that it can survive the, the ordeal, the adventure. And and the most, I would say the, the, the best proof is probably the nose because we were all vomiting and yeah. doing all the things we had to do exactly where we were sitting or standing. So imagine the smell, right? But your nose didn't, didn't smell anything. I, I have no memory of the smell. This is survival mode. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the brain is so intelligent. It turns off whatever it was necessary so that you can survive and move on. Just keep going. Yeah, yeah, so you stop thinking and you stop being scared because uh, everything got uh, kind of shut down. And in my mind, I don't remember 
uh, needing to pee or anything else for four days. But it was impossible, yeah. right? It was impossible. Uh, so probably I just peed on myself without knowing. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, and I don't remember. I was thirsty or hungry. I don't remember. But then there are certain images which are so clear, you know, that red little part going around in in uh, inside that belly mm-hmm. uh, so that we kind of try to be decent mm. but it lasted only for yeah I don't know a couple of hours afterwards nobody cared you just do whatever you needed to do and and I'm very thankful that that period existed because I was born very weak with all kinds of allergies and after those four days on the boat that's it no more allergies whatsoever. I could eat anything right after. So I took in the immune system of everybody, you know, who vomited on me. So maybe we can try that, you know, like (laughs) to cure anybody with allergies. Like, let's go on a boat. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. So uh, the body is uh, so strong. Mm. The brain, it's it's unconscious, subconscious. I, I don't know what it is, but it worked on its own to save you. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Um, I don't know, because sometimes we do we do die. We, do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't survive everything. Uh, but it gave you resilience? Or I, I don't call it resilience, but uh, the power to let go. Okay. Uh, so now I have that in my brain. I let go very easily. And, yeah, you know, you just trust you, you trust life more and not the other way around. It's funny how in a very peaceful country like ours, uh, because we can control everything, right? Uh, you knew that you wanted me to be here at 11.45. <laughs> I knew that I will be able to come here at 11.45 no matter what, even if it's snow, even if there was, you know, the rain came down, a storm, whatever, because we have... Um, we have organized ourselves in a, in a way that we can surmount any challenges uh, th- thrown as, at us, right? Whereas in a country like Vietnam, in a zone at war back then, you cannot control anything. And in a refugee camp, even less, you know, so you just let go. And, and so I think I've grown that part, <laughs> you know, that, that little in my brain. And so now I let go very easily. I don't control anything, so I don't have a destination uh, in life. You know, if you ask me what you're going to be next year, I have no idea where you're going to live. I, yeah, I have no plans uh, whatsoever for the future because I know life is richer than your imagination. Uh, if I can imagine it, then it, it's no longer interesting, right? Because then you're limited with only what you know. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, you just be there, watch, and welcome. Be open to any experience. Yes, then it will take you somewhere else, you know, beyond your imagination. Your story ended well. Like, you made it to Malaysia. You spent some time in the refugee camp, and then you had a, a family take you in. But... You've said many times you know you were very, very lucky. Absolutely. Looking back as an adult, maybe as a parent, would you have made the same decision? I. It's very difficult, you know, uh, to put oneself in somebody's shoes. I'm very thankful that my parents had the courage uh, to make 
this very, well, not even difficult. Difficult is not um, a, a word for this kind of decision to bring your, you know, to put your kids on on a boat and maybe not making it, you know. Yes. To already accept that we won't make it. Uh, when, how a parent could could make that kind of decision. So it takes courage uh, in capital letters and, and, you know, bold, because it's no longer about them. It's all about us uh, and making a decision for for us. Um, so I'm, I'm eternally grateful for them because uh, if they were a little bit selfish, probably we would have stayed back because you're too scared to, to make that move, right? Uh, so let's stay back. So you have to step over yourself and on yourself in order to say, this is the the, the last chance that we have and we're going to take on this challenge. You know, but it's it's easy when you, you think about a mom who would throw a mom or a parent who would throw a child from the second floor by the window because there's a fire inside. The decision is easy to make. I guess you, you don't analyze it, do you? You don't analyze it. It's more you instinctive. just try to save it, save your children mm-hmm. the best way that you can. Yeah. So it's not, and it's no longer about having your child, keeping your child perfect. It's just saving, saving it, it. Yeah. as much as you can. Yeah. So yes, you, you know that the child would break as it would hit the floor, for example, the ground, but it's better than it dies in the fire. And and something could happen, and something might chance, happen. Yeah, yeah. M- maybe someone would catch the. Yeah, the you never know. And that's what happened to us. You know, somebody catch uh, caught us, and uh, and uh, since then it's just like, woof, uh, a very privileged life. You mentioned gratitude to your parents, and you've also mentioned often the gratitude you felt towards the people in Granby, the Quebecers who welcomed you in. Is it just plain and simple kindness? Probably, but it's more than that. It was also a, a, a plunge into the unknown. And there's a documentary, you know, I went back and uh, back then we didn't understand French. So I, <laughs> of course, we watched the documentary, but we didn't understand much. Uh, but recently we found the documentary again. And then I watched it and I, I heard the interview with the mayor of Granby. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, we don't know what we're going to do with them, but we're going to welcome them anyway. So that's the bet, you know. And and we think that we can take on challenges only when we know uh, the the result or the consequences or the impact at the end. But no, we we should take take on challenges without knowing. Have this leap of faith. Yes, and and from the right intention. We're going to help them. We don't know how we're going to help them and how much we can help them. But let's lend a hand first. Let's get them here first, and then we'll figure it out. You know, so and, and that I think because we're lucky to live in this perfect society, so peaceful. I know, I know you're shaking your head. <laughs> well, no. There's no I, such thing as perfection, yeah, but, but it's relative, but it's so extraordinary 
to have to live in such great peace, sure. right? And so we want to offer to everybody the perfect life, as perfect as possible. And because of that, we was restrained. You know, we don't invite friends over because we c we cannot uh, prepare a perfect meal. But how about pizza? You know, just share pizzas and we'll be happy still. And and so yes, sometimes we'll cook, but you know. Uh, if we don't we, we don't have time to do it, we can still see each other and and that's where you know I've learned of letting go it's right. okay right. to be imperfect and and so I have to be I am very grateful to all these people you know for the Canadian uh, agents uh, representatives who came to the camp and and accepted that, you know uh, these refugees that you could not see any potential what they're going to become you know that you we were dirty we were sick we were covered with uh, infections all over you could not see the possibility of a future for these people but we still canada as a country we still took a bet on these people and say Maybe if we take care of them, if we give them the opportunity, they will grow again and they will get well again. And maybe, maybe they will become, uh, you know, uh, full participants and full citizens of this country. And we felt lucky that we had the chance to start from zero again. Right. So this 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 was the mindset, you know. And so to my parents, they they were just happy that we, they had the chance of a second beginning and that their children are in school and that in the morning when they let us go to school, they know that we'll come back, yeah. you know, and that we were living this, uh, this freedom of so being right children. From, right from the start, they felt it, it was worth it. It was worth every single, you know, minute, every mm. second of it. Mm. So they were so happy and thankful to arrive in a place where you can start living again and not just surviving. And there's a big, 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 huge difference. And of course, during the first few years, we were not living. We were still surviving, <laughs> but surviving in a very peaceful country. And everybody tried to help us in one way or the other. You went on to study linguistics. You <laughs> became yes. a lawyer. And then you traveled back to Vietnam on assignment. But you went to Hanoi, which is in the north, the former enemy. Did you have any concerns, any misgivings when you went? No. Well, the concerns were... I didn't know what I was getting into. And, you know, ignorance is bliss. I, I, I love Vietnam when I was very small, well, very young, at 10. So you, I didn't carry the same luggage than someone who was older, like my parents, for example, who uh, truly lost a country, uh, lost their homes, lost their uh, network, right, friends and family. Whereas I had, I still had my family. I had the luck to not lose any of my siblings or uh, my parents, so I was fine. I, I thought I didn't lose much. So when I w went back to Vietnam, uh, there was a, a different opening or a different point of view. My relationship with Vietnam was very different from the one from my parents because I went back as a Canadian. And so I looked at Vietnam or I visited Vietnam with that mindset. And so I fell in love with Vietnam, with a country I 
missed known. How do you say it? Yeah, I kind of know, but didn't know well mm-hmm. enough. And and there were so many misunderstandings as well because we were from the south. We never heard. We didn't hear much from the north because the country was divided into two. Uh, so misconceptions, so many myths. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> and you were there for what about three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the the chance to live there for three years. So did you get you get to know people and you hear their stories and did they want to tell you? Oh, you know, you only have to sit down and yeah. people would just, you know, <laughs> simple question, how are you? <laughs> three hours later. <laughs> yeah. Where's your, where were you born? You know, something like that. Which city, which village? And then they, or the love story. When you ask them, oh. you know, what's your love story? There you go. You spend the whole day and many books to write about. <laughs> so they, they would tell you experiences. And you were you keeping track of this? You were thinking, this is something that really resonates with me or that says what I think or what I felt or at, at one time thought I felt but didn't quite know. I was learning a mm-hmm. lot. Yeah. I was learning a lot. And like I said, I arrived there with a certain knowledge which were not wrong or right but just was just from one side mm-hmm. of the story mm-hmm. i had this the, the the story from the south of vietnam you know that's how we how we looked at, at the the story the events and now all of a sudden you're on the other side from the north and i i open up basically my horizon uh, which allowed me to understand the story with, with more nuances, with more layers, mm-hmm. with more colors. And you fall in love, you know, when you... Oh, my God, I get all emotional. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you realize that there were no enemies. Yeah. We were just humans being divided for the wrong reasons. And... And love, God, love was being used as as an instrument, you know. And I was so mad, I think, to realize this. It was the love of independence, the love for democracy, the love for whatever. But it was always about love. And it was not love at all. Fighting is, you don't fight for peace. You know, there's a contradiction in in the expression itself that we're fighting for peace and we're fighting for the love of uh, of something and to me it's all wrong love is about sitting down let's talk it out you know let's let's work it out i don't know it was about human conditions you know i i don't think we will ever change this is us you know and how do we fight that i i I, I went to see Oppenheimer, you know, the movie. Oh, yeah. And it was the first time that, you know, of course I knew about Hiroshima. And I, of course, I felt pain. I felt the suffering and the stupidity of of us, right? But to see the movie, I don't know why it hit me so hard. Because I said I was in admiration of what we could do with our brain, mm-hmm. you know, when we put all our brains together and 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 we could obtain the most cra- the craziest objective right uh, and and create this bomb because we were so intelligent but if we let ourselves go that far what's the result what's the impact you know of our own intelligence mm-hmm. 
and 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 I wonder, you know, who are we? Why would we use it in this way? Yeah, yeah. and can do we know how to use it in any different way? Yeah. I don't think so, right? Because we always want to go beyond ourselves. And so I said, maybe we should learn how to protect ourselves from our, our, our own selves, you know, uh, before it's too late. But we can never do that because, and I, I've talked to a physicist uh, at one point, I asked her, why do we always want to know more? You know, we have research all the time and, and it's never enough, right? And I'm the first one to always want to know more. <laughs> and uh, she said, you know, because knowledge is the only form of infinity that a human can experience, can touch, can live. So you can live infinity when you're in search for knowledge, when you are learning. Because you can never know everything. Yes, and we can always go further. When you came back from Vietnam, you you had practiced law. You practiced law for what about five years? Yeah, about and, so. And then you became a restaurant owner. I so. know. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a trained chef? No, not at all. I didn't even know. I didn't even know how to cook. But uh, I I thought I wanted to share what I had eaten when I was in Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam had gained back, you know, what it had lost during the war, and I was so proud of uh, the resilience of a whole country. You know how culture bounced back um, so quickly. And uh, and so I said, oh, I'm going to go back to Montreal and share, you know, what I've learned. And because so, Montreal didn't have a lot of that at no. the time. Yeah, we, we we only had what we had 40 years ago. When right. we first arrived here, we didn't have many ingredients. So we had replaced many ingredients with those we uh, we could have we could find here so i said no now we have access to all these fresh herbs so let's 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 you know introduce the the vietnamese uh, cuisine of today the contemporary uh, vietnamese cuisine and you learned to cook as you were as you were operating this restaurant, exactly. one dish at a time. One dish at a time, <laughs> one day at a time, you know, letting go, letting go yeah, once right, again. Right. And um, I was too spoiled uh, by by the customers, you know, my clients. They kept coming back. Uh, so <laughs> That's, good. That's a good thing. No, because they kept me open, right? Because if they didn't come, then I would have closed it, uh, knowing that I couldn't cook, so get out, you know. But they kept coming back and they kept me on my toes for five years. Um, it's a tough business, right? Oh my God, it was the toughest job. No, no, being a mother is the toughest one. And then uh, the, 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 the kitchen. And you're the, both the at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't know, you know, see, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> if I knew, I would not have opened a restaurant ever. Uh, but, but you don't have any regrets of that, do you? No, because I learned a lot, uh, first of all, uh, but also because without the restaurant, I would not have met the people who have inspired me or, or supported me in my writing. The person who, who took the, uh, the manuscripts to the, the editor was one of my customers. You know, I would not have met him, André Dupuis. And he is also the one who bought the rights for the movie, which is coming out, you know, in a couple of months in mm -hmm, November. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so that was uh, essential to whatever came afterwards. And I would not have met Karin Vanas, who had given me uh, a notebook in which I wrote 
uh, room. She was one of the customers. I didn't know, you know, how famous <laughs> she no. was. I didn't know anything. <laughs> and so I I said to her, oh, yeah, you can leave your phone number. If I try a new dish, you can come by and taste it, you know. If I knew that she was a star, I would have never said, yeah, leave your number. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and, uh, and we became friends. And she brought me this little notebook. And uh, on the first page, uh, she, she wrote, uh, uh, maybe it's time for you to write for yourself instead of just writing cards for, you know, for friends. Uh, and so I started writing in that notebook, and it became a book. You started writing in this notebook at red lights, is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely, because it was not serious, right? It was not, yeah. Just exhausted from working, and you'd try mm-hmm. and keep yourself awake. Exactly. And it, it worked. It worked. It's a very good method. So I would share that with anybody. Were you writing down just things that were on your mind or memories mm-hmm. or anything on a scrap of paper yeah. or on the notebook? In a, in a notebook. And from the back, you know, the last page and not from the first page because I thought it was so not important that it could not be on the first page, right? So <laughs> it has that. to go from the back as if I was hiding something. <laughs> So your first book, Rue, which became a bestseller and won all kinds of awards, it it starts with three paragraphs, and it just takes three paragraphs to get drawn into this book. Were they like three separate scraps of paper or three separate? No, that page was the last page. It was the last page of your notebook. It was after I had finished the book. I had finished editing the book. <laughs> It's only when you, you know, the first page, and my, my editor did tell me that. He said, don't worry so much about the first page because you write it only at the end. And I said, oh, whatever, he doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I already have my first page, you know. Uh, but then uh, after I'd finished, I needed to write that first page and because I understood the book only after I had finished it. I didn't know what I was doing. It's not for, I think other serious writers would tell you exactly what they, you know, they knew You're from the You're a pretty serious beginning. writer. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, because I write on a kitchen counter still today, you know, 15 years later. So I don't know how serious I am about this. And I wrote on, on such a... A, a bad computer that there was no word processing. So I wrote in the draft part of Gmail, you know, and it was my brother who's here today who forced, uh, who bought a, 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 comp- a laptop for me and said, maybe you can take yourself, you know, a little bit seriously. And that was after Rue. I, Rue had al- already been published and I was still writing in this very tiny, kind of like, almost like a, ma- a, a typing machine, you know, like a typewriter. Well, I'm really curious about these notes in your notebook. Did you copy them verbatim into a document? Almost, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the new edition that we're going to uh, publish in uh, soon, in November as well, uh, I uh, there will be pictures of that notebooks. And you can see that it's quite similar to what you have in the book. Not then, verbatim, but right. quite, because it was bad French. So you have to, <laughs> to clean it up a little and bit. And then you added a few more things? Or yeah, yeah. And we, I continue writing, continue. right? Because you only have the first 
part of the book in the notebook. Because this was supposed to actually be a break, wasn't it? Your husband yeah. suggested you just stop and think about what you wanted to do. Yeah, it was not even a break. It was like a penalty period. Like, just stop, stop moving around. Oh, my God, you know. He was so tired of seeing me just throwing myself uh, at different walls. And so, uh, yeah, it was just, he was just being kind. He, he didn't believe in the writing at all. I still remember him asking me, uh, reading is not, you know, enough. For, it's not satisfying enough for you. Why, do you, why, why are you trying to write, you know? And I said, uh, I don't know. But I just love playing with words. So to me, it was well, not writing. you have a degree in ling- linguistics. Yeah, but I was not qualified <laughs> at all. You, you know, I still don't know what linguistics means. So uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, it's terrible. No, I, I, that degree allowed me to learn French, basically. That was my francisation. It was f- learning the French language. Mm-hmm. It was not to become a translator or linguistic or any of that. But I, I learned the nuances, mm-hmm. the importance of words. Uh, we need to invent, to create a word for, for every emotion or sensation we feel, because otherwise we cannot express it. We cannot feel it then, you know. Uh, so I, I understand the importance of the nuances. You know, nostalgia is not the same than melancholia. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can say that I'm not feeling well, but if you uh, precise, uh, you know, you give the precision with the word, I'm frustrated, I'm irritated. And it helps yourself, not even the person listening to you, to understand what you're going through. So we are very lucky as humans to have these words so precise. Of course, we can invent more and more, right? Uh, And there are so many words uh, which exist in certain languages and not in in French or English because they have a different read on on life. Uh, And it's great when you have many languages, then you understand even more. I think in German, they have something like the pleasure of seeing someone slipping on a banana. Oh, in German, they have, yes, everything, Uh, the name for opening Christmas presents, as opposed to other presents. Yeah, 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 it's it's just just (laughs) incredible. Same thing, you know, so I am amazed with uh, the human brain, how we can identify all those different emotions, very similar, but not same. Uh, and because of words, our, our ability to find the right words. Um, and so that's what I learned from, uh, from translation and linguistics. And then law taught me the importance of concision, uh, how to be so precise, but at the same time, it has to be concise, you know, so that we can convey the message in a very efficient way. Um, otherwise, because I love words, I would have put too many, you know. <laughs> I would write, I don't know, 1,000 pages, but a contract cannot be a 1,000-page contract. Uh, even and your books are lovely and slim. Uh, yeah. I love that about them. It's already way too long as a contract, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, after Rue came Man, about a Vietnamese woman who owns a restaurant in Montreal. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Her private life is one of duty and obligation. And when she falls for a married chef in Paris, she experiences romantic love for the first time. Do you think that love is fairly 
commonly sacrificed by immigrants, by refugees, especially when they're building a second life. Absolutely, because it's almost like the last one. But at the same, you know, the last thing you're looking for. But at the same time, I would tell you that the immigrant story is all about love. Um, if we don't have that kind of love among us, we would not have survived. We know that we have to love each other in a camp. Otherwise, you will never survive. You need someone to line up for 24 hours just to fetch water. You need another person to spend the whole day to go find you know, branches to make fire. And so you don't have a choice to love. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you need to love so much so that you can share the little piece of food that you have among a big group of people so that we can all survive. So yes, I can tell you that romantic love is probably accessory. But at the same time, love is never more alive and essential as in a refugee camp. And I'll give you one you know, very simple example, and I, I've written about that in the uh, in the recipe book. It taught me so much about us, you know, about dignity, about sharing, uh, about uh, solidarity, of that little bag of um, of soda, right? Of of uh, it, it was not Coca Cola. It was like a local uh, brand of uh, bubbly water, brown water, right? And I don't know how we got that back, but it was full of ice with that, that liquid, right? And a straw uh, standing in the middle with a rubber band holding it, uh, you know, at the, at the top. And uh, it was so hot, you know, like 40 degrees. And somehow, you know, we were 13. There was one baby, so let's say there were, we were 12. We had not seen ice for so long, right? And yes, it was only four months or three months, whatever, but in our mind, forever. You know, we had not seen electricity, we had not seen running water, so forget ice. So then you see this bag and you see the condensation of the, of the drops, you know, of the water condensing on, on the side of the bag. And we were all looking at it, and my brothers were younger than me, so of course, the, the bag would start with them and, and not with me because we always start with the youngest. And I said to myself, I would never get to drink any of that water because there was so little. And so I said, maybe I can leak, you know, that, that that's how you say it, right? To lick the, the to bag. To lick the bag? To lick the, the bag. The outside of the bag. The outside, you know, just to feel the cold mm -hmm. and to have a, a few drops of that ice, right, uh, of that condensation. And, uh, and that was all that I was hoping for. And I, I don't know if my, my memory is right or not, but nobody has said to anybody that, oh, don't drink too much, okay, leave some for, for me or they just knew that. for us. Yeah. But somehow we all understood. Yeah. And could you believe it? Like my brothers, they were so young. They were six and seven. And... Uh, Oh my God, I get emotional again. <laughs> uh, getting old, eh? Getting old. This is what happens to you when you're like over 50, when you're 54 and you have all you your You remember hormones. beautiful things. And um, you're remembering the love of your brother. Yeah. And somehow that bag went around the group of 12 many times. So nobody drank that bag. 
we all kind of just wet the our lips probably you know how could it go around for yeah. you know many times it's like the story in man where she's got the broth the tomato soup mm-hmm. and her father left that for her and her brother also Yeah. Left that for her, and that's a true story yeah. of a woman who works at a manicure, you know, a nail salon mm-hmm. uh, near my house. And I was just asking, and and one day she just asked me, "Oh, do you have the recipe for this tomato soup?" You know, and I said, "What? That's the simplest, you know, <laughs> soup. You don't need a recipe for that because it's just water." Tomato, a piece of parsley, and fish if you have, and fish sauce. That's it. Uh, and lime, lime juice. Uh, and somehow it's really good, though. It's very tasty. And But her soup, the one she was talking about, there was no fish. There was nothing. It's just a piece of tomato in water and a piece of parsley. And she said she had been trying with all kinds of tomatoes, you know, pink ones, yellow ones. And I said, you should go back to prison. Then you will find your soup, okay? Forget trying because your soup here is too good. You eat chicken broth and fish broth and all of that. You know, like the tomatoes are bio or, or organic. And yeah. So, of course, you never get the, that soup in prison. <laughs> Uh, after Man, then came V mm-hmm. in 2016, and it was immediately shortlisted for the Giller. In V, a young girl, the only daughter of a woman who's fled Saigon, she disappoints her mother by studying linguistics instead of medicine, by taking the wrong man, and then breaking the engagement, uh, and then even going back to Vietnam and coming back with a trace of the wrong accent. And so there's this conflict. What do you think the children of refugees owe their parents? Um, we own a lot, but it's again contradiction. The parents want us to uh, take root very quickly, as quickly as possible, in this new, you know, in our new country. Uh, but at the same time, they're scared of losing, right, the roots uh, that that where we came from, uh, from our origins, and so that there's a struggle within them, forget us, you know, within Mm -hmm. them, themselves. And so they're happy that we are performing in school, but then, how come you no longer speak uh, Vietnamese, you know, as well as you should? And we're like, "Uh, yeah, because we're no longer studying in Vietnamese, (laughs) you know, like, okay, so what do you want from us? And so it it is difficult for, for... for all of us, for the parents and for the children, uh, because we want the same thing. And sometimes we even think that in order to gain new roots, we have to cut off old roots. Uh, so I had to live that, you know, through that period, like all immigrant students. Right? Uh, uh, yeah, it's it was like a classic story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one day a journalist had told me uh, or taught me that you don't have to choose. And I said, oh. How how stupid I was to think that I had to choose. You know, we are living in in such a great country, this country, where you don't even have to choose your citizenship. You can have two citizenship <laughs> if you if you want. You know, so forget culture. Take all the cultures you want. And uh, and so I have been trying to tell all the students who want to hear me, all the younger people, to say, hey. You know, you're not just 100% Canadian or 100% Vietnamese. 
uh, you are 200%. And and I'm not going for 70% or 30% or whatever. No, 100%. Because you don't need to know a culture perfectly to, to own it. Okay? You can adopt it as soon as you love it unconditionally. If you love a culture, it is yours. You don't, ex- you don't wait for it to adopt you. You adopt it first, right? So I, I love, you know, uh, the, our, our culture here in Quebec unconditionally. It's not because it's perfect. It's because it's, it's just mine. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to take it, all of it. So yes, 100%. Uh, English Canada, I've never lived outside of Quebec, but I, it's my country as well. So I'm going to say it's mine. So I'm 100% English Canada, and I am certainly 100% Vietnamese because I also love the Vietnamese culture unconditionally. So I'm now 300%, okay? I'm not 100%. And I am really in love with uh, Swedish culture as well. So I'm about to be 100% oh Swedish. You can be 400%. Yes, you know? You're just getting uh, bigger and bigger. Japanese culture too. <laughs> so yeah, I take, I take in all. Kim, um, M is your latest novel, another acclaimed book, long-listed for the Dublin Literary Award, the former Impact Dublin, uh, and the Giller again. And it's the first... Shortlisted. 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 I'm sorry. Could you believe it? Yes. No, of course I can. I, I, I cannot. So I have to say it so I can believe it. Yeah. Shortlisted. <laughs> my apologies. No, not at all. So I, I thought, it was a, oh my God, yeah. And it's the first time you change perspectives in a book, and you move the story kind of from character to character, weaving threads like like the threads in the illustration that's mm-hmm. on the cover of the French issue, and I don't know why we didn't get it on the cover of the English, but anyway. The artist uh, is next door, you uh, know? He's in the building next to you. <laughs> I'm curious how you decided on this different kind of structure. Uh, I, I never decide on anything, you know? It came to me that way because there were too many stories I wanted to talk about, and I see them all linked together but at the same time, not linked, or, or they, you know, the links break up. And, uh, of course, we can see it as a heartbreak, right, when you see uh, two characters not seeing each other again. But uh, that's life. It's part of it. I, I learned it from the artist who made the painting because uh, he gave it to me. He gave the whole painting to me, could you believe this? Uh, you know, my luck in life. Uh, and, and, and the the threads, there were many threads hanging. And I said, I don't know how to keep these threads exactly in that those positions because I had to carry it home. And he said, no, I want you to play with them. They are alive. If you try to keep them in position, then they become static and they will die. Play with them. They are yours. And I said, oh. In the Vietnamese culture, you know, we believe that there's a, like an angel somewhere up there who would take two threads and put them together and form a couple, you know, and that's how love goes around, like why two people would be together. And so I said, I'm going to play God. <laughs> You're the angel. Yes, and I uh, yes, uh, the yeah, angel because we don't it. have God. So it's an angel, <laughs> and I'm gonna just put two threads together from time to time. And yes, and I'll give myself the freedom to let the threads, you know, live on their own and move 
around and be stay together or break up. And so that's how I, I started writing this book. And you used some historical events, the, the Operation Baby Lift, as a to give it context. Yeah. Uh, because I wanted to talk about the forgotten ones, mm. you know, those who don't have a voice. And when they don't have a voice, we forget to write about them, to talk about them. And if we don't talk about them, we don't care for them, right? That's that's a problem. And you've said us. that in Vietnam they don't write about this history. No, of course not. Because But are they it, starting to? They are starting to. There's uh, at least one more uh, author who has written about the title is Dust Child. So it's exactly, you know, the, the expression that we use uh, to call these uh, forgotten children. Um, and uh, and I, I have given myself the mission uh, to try to talk for those who don't have a voice, to not fight for them because I'm not strong enough and I don't have the right, probably, vehicle, but to make them visible, to make the invisible visible, even if it's only uh, for a second, you know, like those fireflies. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's only for that moment, but at least they have existed. And to me, it's important right. to, yeah, because it's so easy for us to... Uh, pass by and not look, mm -hmm. you know, it's easier. Not because we are selfish or anything, Because it's because it's too hard on us. It's too hard to see, to, to feel, to live that emotions. Nobody, you know, can, can, can be neutral mm -hmm. when we pass by a child being abandoned on a sidewalk. In a, in a city, box, yeah. in a box, it's impossible. Yeah, yeah. And we just block our view, so that we don't have to go through this disturbing emotion. I think that's what writers do. They that, they remind that, us of yeah. what we don't want, care to remember. Yeah, or, or to give us of the right to okay, we cannot change the whole world, but maybe we can just make it a little tiny bit better. You know one person at a time, one gesture, not even one person, just one gesture, a smile. Kim, I have so many more questions. I'll wrap it up with maybe a question or two about the cookbook, Secrets from My Vietnamese Kitchen. Um, were these dishes you served at your restaurant? Uh, yes, but uh, most of the time at home as well, because they are easy to make. I thought it's beautiful how you show a picture of your, your mother and your aunts, with two pictures, one of them kind of serious and one of them laughing or happy. And yes. I thought, whose idea was that? It was me, because they laugh so much, my aunts. <laughs> they are so dramatic, you know, uh, in, in both ways, uh, like crying as much as laughing. And they're not so Asian, in a way, uh, or they don't follow the rules so well. And so I, I, I said, okay, most of the time we have this vision, you know, this, this, uh, this image, uh, very typical of an Asian, especially an older Asian person, that they're very serious, you know, and very quiet. And then I said, no, not at all. Come to my house. <laughs> <laughs> They can be totally crazy. <laughs> my husband made the uh, marinated 
pork belly with bamboo shoots. Oh. Which, it was delicious. I hardly ever eat bamboo shoots. So I, I, I loved it. But I can tell you, we made it in our little cottage. And the smell of... Yeah, the, oh, was, God, that was so wrong. <laughs> well, it's the fish smell. But it's very evocative, isn't it? Uh, smells. Yes, yes. Uh, smells. You know how it is. We always forget about the memory of the smells. Mm. But that was the first thing, actually, apparently, that our brain registers. And, and, and But we rarely talk about the smell. But you know how it is. As soon as we walk into a home, we know right away where it is mm-hmm. because of because of the smell. And we don't have a lot of words for smell, though, do no. we? Like we have a lot for visual things, but mm-hmm. smell we always compare it to something else. Exactly, and 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 we cannot recreate the smell. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a a friend's house that I I really love the smell, and I try to, you know, register what she has in her home. And to buy the same detergent, but it doesn't work. It It doesn't work because maybe because I cook with fish sauce, so it kills everything else. Uh, But uh, yeah, so each home would have a very typical and and very personal smell, a DNA kind of smell, and um, and so. to me, cooking is a lot about smell. You don't even need to taste it. And and uh, there's a chef in Chicago who uh, had a cancer of, uh, on his, of his tongue or something like that. So he could no, lo- no longer taste, but he could still have his smell. And so he cooked with his smell. And we always link those two together, yeah. but they're not. They are very separate. They, and that's why fish sauce, it smells in one way, but it tastes completely differently. It, the two different worlds. Does it send planets. you back somewhere when you taste it? Of course, of course. It's home. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's home. home. Wow. It's home. Absolutely. And it's Vietnamese right away. I, <laughs> no other countries would, would smell so much fish sauce. <laughs> Kim, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you, thank you. It's been so much fun. It was too short, but (laughs) let's do it again. (laughs) Thank you. That was Kim Twee, the best-selling, multi-award-winning novelist. Check out the film adaption of Rue by Chloe Danji and find Kim's books at fine bookstores everywhere. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to follow us on your podcast app to sign up for our newsletter on the website howiwrotethispodcast.com. Next week, join me as I talk to Neil Smith, the translator, short story writer, and author of three novels. <laughs>